Hello and welcome to Intrepid Times, your home for narrative travel writing with heart. I'm Nathan Thomas, and alongside my co-host Jennifer Roberts, we take you behind the scenes of some of our most popular travel stories, get you to meet travel writers, and help you discover how you can share your own travel stories with the world. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Travel Writing Podcast. I'm Jennifer Roberts. Uh, Many of you will likely recognize today's guest, uh, as we had him on several months ago for a really interesting conversation about his two most recent books. Uh, I'm joined today by Tim Hannigan. Uh, And for those who need the rundown, Tim is an award-winning author and travel journalist and has a PhD from the University of Leicester. He works on travel writing and contemporary nature writing as an academic. And his scholarly research has been published in various journals and edited collections. During our conversation today, we'll be referencing one of his scholarly articles in particular, uh, titled Counting Up the Lies, a Self-Reflexive Investigation of Craft and Fictionalization in a Modern Travel Book. That was published in Journeys in December of 2018. Uh, We may also mention his book, The Travel Writing Tribe, which was published in 2021, and his book, The Granite Kingdom, published in 2023. We'll provide links to to all of those, of course. And if you were paying attention to the title of the podcast, uh, you'll know that today's conversation is going to focus on the role of truth in travel writing and some of the complicated considerations that revolve around this expectation of honesty in travel writing. Uh, This is a topic that comes up a lot when we speak to writers in our community, Uh, And Tim, I think, is the perfect person to help me dive into this, Uh, not only because it's something he's studied as an academic, but also because it's something he's had to experiment with and reflect on a great deal as a travel writer himself. Uh, So thank you so much, Tim, for coming back on the podcast. Thanks for having me back. Uh, yeah, you you could you could have me talking for hours on this topic, and you know I think we just about touched on it last time, so uh, I was very eager for part two. Yeah, and I'm super excited about this one. There's a lot to to talk about here. So I guess to get us started, like many travel writers, you know, when I started writing travel stories, I was definitely aware that travel writing falls within this kind of big category of nonfiction writing. And that, you know, as you say in the article, travel books are commonly understood to be in some sense autobiographical, right? But I didn't have much sense of how deep these ethical considerations ran in this particular genre of travel writing. Um, And it wasn't until I read your book, The Travel Writing Tribe, that I had to really think hard about how I was approaching truth in my own writing. I think a lot of writers are in the same boat I was in before, where they understand that they should write travel stories based on what actually happened, but they don't think about it much beyond that. Um, So just before we get into some of the nitty gritty of this topic, um, and there is a great deal of nuance here, just to to warn listeners, um, I wonder if you could give us a very brief intro into why this topic is such a tricky one in the travel writing space. Yeah, um, I I think like so many so many issues around travel writing, so many interesting things around travel writing, it emerges from travel writing's generic indeterminacy, to use a horrible kind of academic phrase, that sense that travel writing 
doesn't entirely sit comfortably anywhere. Uh, you know, you talked about how you first sort of engaged with this in writing practice, writing travel travel articles, writing travel stories. That's that's how I started as a as a published travel writer. It's how an awful lot of people do, even people who go on to write the narrative books, literary travel books, start and travel journalism. And there's there's a key word in the title, journalism. And journalism, whatever people might cynically say when they're complaining about it, journalism generally is understood to have a extremely strict truth principle. You know, quotes are verbatim. You record them. You do not you do not sort of make things up in journalism. An argument that you might spin things in a particular way that there might be editorial lines. But journalism is understood to be strictly factual, whether it's in a newspaper or on the radio or the television or podcast form. So travel journalism, which tends to kind of be centered on the, the feature article, which is a narrative form, we might expect that to have exactly those same rules. But I think everyone who has ever written travel features knows that it's not quite held to the same standard as the news articles or the features journalism where it's going to interview somebody like me, maybe. Um, the, there tends to be a higher threshold there. Whereas I think we all know, even though we don't talk about it, that in our practice, it's not that we make things up, but, you know, you might just reorder the events on the day for a for a 1,500-word travel article just because it kind of works better to discuss the market in the morning and then the, whatever it was, the the, the ancient building in the afternoon. And um, we have all done. I think I think if we're entirely honest, there are very, very few travel, travel journalists, travel feature writers who haven't done that. And that instantly takes you into a kind of weird place because you are working essentially in a journalistic space. The articles might well be published in if it's not a specialist travel publication, they might be published in pages of a newspaper of a mainstream newspaper that also carries sport reporting and feature writing and um, news journalism that would be held to a very very stricter standard. So there's this kind of slipperiness, unacknowledged, generally unacknowledged slipperiness that, that kind of creeps in. And then I think you then carry that over into book form, uh, that idea that, you know, there's this, this tension um, between the fact that this is nonfiction and you know that readers receive it as nonfiction, but you also have this this obligation to create a strong narrative. And sometimes that thing that was in the morning just makes more sense in the afternoon for the narrative. So it's it's a product of those tensions that are there in, in travel writing, that tension between whether it's journalism or whether it's literature, in whatever form, even in the shorter forms, there's still that tension. And then in book form, in narrative form, it's that tension between, this is nonfiction, people expect this all to have happened, but they also expect to have a good read. They expect a well-crafted narrative. So, so the, I think those are the those are the, the tensions that, that underpin this. Yeah, I mean, you speak quite a bit in this article about, you know, there's a really nice quote you have. Um, I'll go ahead and just read the quote. What is significant is that this craft imperative appears to be capable of trumping truth, even in a book a writer intends to be and believes to be a true account. Um, so this is what you're talking about, right? Where we want to offer the reader something that feels honest and true uh, as far as it can be, but we also want it to be a good piece of writing. And I think there is a great deal of tension there and people don't exactly know where the threshold lies, you know, as you mentioned. 
speaking specifically to this article, we'll link to this article, but just to make listeners uh, aware, um, this article analyzes an unpublished travel book you wrote in your 20s, and it pays particular attention to how and why you had inserted fictional elements uh, into that book. Um, the book was titled The Ghost Islands. Uh, the research trip that produced it happened in 2005, but as you mentioned, you had already visited the region in 2003 and 2004, and you had developed the idea for a book focusing on indigenous religious traditions and belief in the supernatural in the islands east of Bali. Um, and so that became The Ghost Islands, right, which was never officially published. It was written as a full manuscript, though. I also think it's important to note here that when you wrote that book, you had read a lot of travel books, but you say in the article that you don't believe you had been exposed to any of the scholarly debates around travel writing. Um, so then in 2018, when you wrote this article, you know, this is more than a decade after writing the book, you were able to go back to that manuscript and approach it as a now travel writing scholar and do this kind of, you know, honesty analysis of it. And so you do mention this fact that there are moments in that book where you went back and recognized that you changed the order of quite a few things. You know, specifically, you took moments even from these trips from 2003 and 2004 and added them into this kind of narrative that people would have assumed reading this book that it was from this trip in 2005. And so, I mean, as you mentioned, I think that almost every person listening to this, if they've written any kind of travel story, they can probably say, yeah, I've done that. I mean, if we're talking about creating a good narrative, something that makes sense to readers, that they can process, that they can connect with, you know, how problematic is this kind of, you know, reordering? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the question, isn't it? And it's, I don't have... I don't have a definitive answer to it. I I don't really present one in the article. In a way, what I was initially interested in when I went to look at the article was, you know, how sort of orientalist and colonialist discourse might be seeping out about how all those tropes and cliches about this, what for me, Indonesia was this distant, exotic land. And that stuff is all in there, as I would have expected it to be. I, I was very young when I was writing it. I wasn't exposed to... Debate. And it is 20 years ago now. So um, it was, yeah, I think, I think generally we've moved on. And I think a writer of that age writing now would hopefully be slightly more sensitive. Um, they hopefully have listened to a few podcasts like, like this one and be exposed to those things. And I, I, I don't say that flippantly. I think that's genuinely, genuinely true. We were, you know, early 2000s and the still still emerging from what now feels like a very distant era when travel writing still had a lot of the problems that maybe it's beginning to move out of so I was I was in the first instance just expecting to look at all of that stuff but it was just this sort of this web of little fabrications that ran through the whole thing that increasingly fascinated me when I looked at it and I was kind of aware that I had written scenes in from a visit two years earlier and that I'd you know put this put stuff that happened actually after the main bulk of the the eastward journey I put that in chapter one and because I came back to where I started at the end just you know to shape this narrative and that that's what became increasingly fascinating for me the fact that I'd done it so readily but also why I'd done it I, and to be clear there's nothing there's nothing big made up in in this manuscript there are no 
accounts of me going to places I didn't go to. Um, there are no substantial encounters with people who didn't exist. There are a couple of people who didn't exist, but they're, they're there purely as devices. Like I needed a taxi driver in the narrative because I hadn't actually gone from A to B in <laughs> 2005. So there are a couple of people who, who, don't, who don't even speak, I don't think, who are, a taxi driver took me to place X. But there are these, these sort of lengthy set piece conversations and encounters with people. Those all happened. And I recounted them as far as I'm aware, pretty faithfully. Not consciously tweaking or changing anything in there. But still, there's just this network of fiction, which is all there ultimately to, to forge a narrative. You know, because it would have just been clunkier and messier if I'd have said, and as I was passing through place X, as I was passing through Sumbawa on a bus and nothing really happened in 2005, I reflected back to when I'd been there two years earlier. I mean, that would kind of interfere with the narrative, which is that I was traveling into what for me was a new place. Well, it wasn't a new place at the point that this was that this journey was undertaken. So there's lots of little things like that. Now, you you might say, well, they don't matter because I've not substantially invented anything. I've just ordered a narrative, which is it's what you do. It's what documentary makers do as well. But it just creates this tissue of indeterminacy again, running through the thing that I know about. And what I think concerns me about it is that it then starts to license you when you cross that threshold. Now, yep, all, all I think the vast majority, vast majority of travel writers do this, including the ones who are very strict about telling the truth. When you take somebody like Colin Thubron, who repeatedly stresses that he doesn't make things up and, you know, he's very truthful about it. Paul Theroux, likewise, always says, you know, I'm very strict about this, very strict. But if you look in some of Colin Thubron's books, there'd be a little note at the beginning where he says part of this journey was undertaken six months later because there was there was a war at the time of the main journey. But he doesn't indicate in the narrative that where that happens. He just travels smoothly from China to Afghanistan and then on to Iran. When we know from this little note at the beginning that he actually flew from China to Iran and picked up and then came back and did the Afghanistan bit later on or, or whatever it might be. In one of Paul Theroux's books, if you pay very close attention, I think it's Ghost Train to the Eastern Star. He's suddenly in Japan and it's snowing, it's winter, which just doesn't match up with where he was in the previous chapter. Um, so he's clearly gone home and come back. And it's it's not it's it's the the joint hasn't be, has been plastered over. We don't we don't see the joint. And it's that that kind of tissue of fictionality that begins to embed itself in, in a non-fiction narrative that I find really interesting. I, I'm not sort of condemning it outright. But I think it's I think it's interesting and peculiar and not talked about often enough. Yeah, I mean, there's there's two questions that are that are kind of coming out of what you just said. I guess the first one I want to hone in on this word you use, where you didn't consciously change anything, right. <laughs> but you go back and you know in this article you're kind of looking back at your diary that you kept and then comparing it to the book that came out of those notes and that experience. And you do find things that changed. You know, you didn't intend for it to be fabricated, for it to be a lie, but it is not exactly faithful to what actually happened. Um, so there is this suggestion that, well, it's only bad if I did it on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't exactly know what, what to think about this because, you know, when we're traveling, 
Many of us as travel writers will take notes, but we're going to have to rely to a certain extent on our memory. And, you know, we've had a lot of questions about this recently with, you know, people in our community. Well, you know, I want to write about this person, but I don't remember exactly what they looked like. You know, my memory is telling me they may have had this color hair or something like this kind of voice, but I can't confirm that because I don't have a video, I don't have a photo. Is it okay for me to do the best I can and just remember what I can remember? Uh, yes, um, I, you know, that's another another of those tensions that's that's always present in all travel writing, which is, it's a non-fiction genre. And if you look at, if you look at a piece of travel writing, there are typically things, little sort of strategies, rhetorical strategies that travel writers use, uh, not necessarily consciously, but uh, to convey the idea that this is true, um, that this that this really happened. And it can be the kind of the clear reference to real, real places. If I'm sort of walking through the, the Seattle City Plaza in a certain place and I describe the cathedral as it is verifiably as, as a reader can go and, and, and check on Google. That kind of is a is a rhetoric of truth. So then when I chat with somebody in the cafe underneath that cathedral, that's sitting in this this kind of um, body of truth rhetoric that I've set up with the description. Lots of other little things. I mean, one of the classic, classic things that travel writers do is refer in their travel books to them taking notes. I mean, travel writers are always saying I sat in a cafe and wrote down my notes. I, I mean, I've I've done that in books that I've written. Um, Bruce Chatwin sort of made a whole career out of it and launched a, an entire brand, Moleskin Notebooks, off the back of that. Paul Theroux is forever flipping out his notebook in his, his book. So that in itself, that's, that's part of that rhetoric of truth-telling, because you're saying, look, here I am. I'm writing notes. You can see me writing notes, so you can trust what I'm saying. But when you actually read travel writing as a reader, there's a kind of counterpoint counterbalance to that rhetoric of truth telling which is how completely unbelievable it so often is and i don't mean that in the sort of oh i saw a dragon sense um i mean in the sense that a travel writer will go into that cafe and proceed to describe that scene in meticulous detail and say that the person i fell into conversation with in the cafe had you know whatever coloured hair and a fine red trim on his shirt and he had a very small scar to the left of his mouth and his glasses were rimmed in yellow or whatever and just particular stuff and not just the person but the entire scene around them you know down to the tassels on the awning of the cafe and if you think about it no matter how how good your memory is no matter how quickly you wrote those notes up afterwards that detail is impossible I, mean, I always say this to people in, in workshops and so on. Okay, think of uh, what you had for breakfast this morning. Think of the scene at breakfast. All right, now write down exactly what happened. And you say, well, I know what I had for breakfast. I had cornflakes or whatever. So which spoon did you use? What colour was the bowl? You know, three different bowls there in your in your cupboards. Which which colour was the bowl? <laughs> or if you were in a restaurant, what did the waiter look like? Was it, was it even a man or a woman? Were they young or old? You know, did, they, did they have short hair or long hair? What did they say to you? But that kind of stuff is routinely described in travel books, which is which is kind of unbelievable. I, I guess we can give some credit to some people for having you know really really great memory and meticulous note taking. But a lot of that stuff is doing the best I can. I can't really remember what he looked like, but I think he had glasses. Did he have glasses? And look, I'll give him glasses because it gives some concrete tangibility to the scene.
And the cafe, I honestly don't remember the cafe. Was it on the left or the right? It was near the cathedral somewhere anyway. Well, look, I saw the cathedral. So let's say I can look out and see the cathedral in the background. This stuff happens mostly at an unconscious level, I think, most of the time. I, I don't think possibly people who are new in their travel writing career maybe agonize over more. But I think people who are up and running do this stuff barely, barely aware that it's going on. They, they just give the man some glasses and they and they give themselves a view of the cathedral because yeah, it doesn't feel like a fabrication. They met the man, the substance of what he says that they write about is faithfully reported. So those kind of details are just, yeah, it, it was probably like that. This feels like a problem of, you know, definition, right? Where, and you speak quite a bit about this in the trial writing tribe. And I believe you mentioned in the article a couple of times where, just the definition of travel writing is tricky because it has changed so much. You know, I think it was only 1800s where it was kind of the expectation that travel writing needed to be true. Before that, it was it was a genre that was more fictionalized than not, probably. So the expectations around travel writing have changed. The definition has changed. There are people who define it as it has to absolutely follow the truth. There are others who have a much looser definition where, you know, it's based on a journey and a personal experience of that. You know, that leaves a lot more open space. So the fact that we don't have one definition almost makes this conversation a little bit impossible, doesn't it? It does because, and again, it goes back to that idea of it being slippery, hard to pin down. But if you step away from, from specifically travel writing, what we are left with is a pretty strong binary distinction in the material that we read, that we encounter as, as human beings. And we do generally, no matter how, how smart, how postmodern, how aware we think we are, we do typically receive everything in one of two channels, the, the fiction one or the nonfiction one. And again, that, that happens automatically. It's kind of bedded into us. We sit down and we turn on the television and what's on, it's the news. And yeah, even if it's a news channel we don't particularly like, and we know that they've got a pretty pretty serious editorial angle, we still think, well, they're not actually staging that stuff that they've gone out and filmed, even if they're being very selective in, in who they're talking to and how they editorialize it when they go back to the anchors. We still think, yeah, that that isn't that isn't fiction. The, the, the material of it isn't fiction, even if it's being spinned in a particular way. And then we turn over to another channel and it's Michael Palin wandering through a market in his umpteenth travel show. And we think, yeah, OK, that's he really is there wandering around Marrakesh and that's that's him. And although they might have set up this encounter with the guy he's going to meet in the market, that really is who that person is. He's not an actor, the, the, the guy he meets in the market to tell him about the history or whatever. Fine. And then we flip to another channel and we're like, oh, this so cool this is saving private ryan it's it's fiction right it's a it's a fictional representation of a a real historical event but we know it's fiction and, and we just are so attuned to that and we really struggle to accommodate things that fall between the cracks um in both books and filmic material television and um, as i said no matter how cynical or or uh, or aware or, or whatever we might think we are we do struggle and and i think with books it's even more it's even more pronounced 
because generally speaking, you know, if you ask people as an abstract about this, you say, you know, well, you read lots of nonfiction, you read memoir, you read travel writing. I mean, you, you know that some of the stuff is going to be made up, right? And people say, yeah, yeah, of course it is. Of course it is. I mean, you know, nobody could remember whether the guy they met in the cafe was wearing glasses or not, or whether there were tassels on the awning of the cafe, of course. But then when you present them with actual examples of that happening, they're generally really angry and upset as readers. And I, I, I know I am as well. When you spot it, when you spot something like Paul Theroux being in Japan and suddenly it's snowing and you think, hang on a minute, he was he was in China in summer a minute ago or whatever it might be. You, you spot it and you, you go, ah, caught you, caught you. And yeah, I, th I think that's that's something that lies behind this, that that binary fiction or nonfiction in which we receive texts. We're not very good. And there is that argument that travel writing used to be sort of pre-19th century. It used to be expected to be more fluid. The, the literature in general was expected to be more fluid. Now, I'm not entirely convinced by that argument. That's an argument that people working on that kind of literature, academics working on that kind of literature are pretty strong about, which I think there's something in it, but I think they can overstate it because people did take, for example, The Travels of John Mandeville, which is a, a hoax, a 14th century hoax. People did take that. Columbus took that with him across the Atlantic to use as a guidebook. So he clearly believed it was true enough to be of guidebook value, whereas some modern academics would tell, oh, no, it was understood even by its first audience to be not quite true. And I, I'm not entirely sure how well evidenced that that argument actually is. But definitely from the 19th century onwards, we became very, very firm in our, in our kind of binary. Yeah, just to put that into perspective for listeners, uh, John Mandeville, I believe he wrote about, you know, people with like dog heads, <laughs> right? Like this is like fantastical stuff. So this is like the level we're talking about here. Oh um, yeah, definitely. Dog's heads, one single huge foot, one eye, no heads, eyes in their chest, all of that kind of stuff. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense with this this idea of binary, right? You know, you were talking about, you know, when we spot specific examples of this, we tend to be angry. Um, I found this interesting when I was reading the article because there's a really fun, interesting, complicated example um, that I want to pull out for us. So, you know, in this article, I feel like you have kind of two main categories of, you know, what you call fabrications. Um, there are things that you add in, such as, you know, pulling pieces from your past travels, and then there are things that you leave out. Some of them may have been intentional. I think you say that many of them weren't, you know, conscious. It was only after you went back to them that you kind of noticed the things that you left out. But there is an interesting discussion in this article about what you allow the characters in the book to say. There's one example uh, where you write in the article, it says on page 47 of the manuscript, I describe a conversation with a man called Bajio, I hope I'm pronouncing Bajio. that. Perfect. In Candirasa, Bali. In the manuscript, he talks, as he really did talk, about popular Balinese beliefs about tsunamis as divine punishment. But something is left out. The entry for 1st of May, 2005. In the diary notes, the man in the hotel had been to England. <laughs> so you choose in that moment to let him speak about local beliefs, but erase the fact that he had been to England which obviously would cause the reader to approach that information in a very different way. And, you know, for some reason, this kind of removal of information, this erasure, makes me more uneasy than, you know, for example, reorganizing events. 
you know, there's there's a different kind of manipulation here because, you know, it involves other people. And maybe that's what makes me more uneasy. You know, when I read that, I felt angry. Like, Tim, how could you? <laughs> you know, you're not you're not lying in the sense that we understand lying. You're not telling untruths about this person, representing them in the way in a way that you did not interpret them at the time. You're just leaving things out. But, you know, in, in a way, you're not representing them entirely faithfully either. So then, you know, I had to kind of take a step back and recognize you wrote this book a long time ago before you had the chance to think a lot about these things. And I do feel like in your most recent book, The Granite Kingdom, you tried as hard as you possibly could to represent people faithfully. Yeah. You know? as close to the truth as you possibly could get. You know, when we're thinking about writing about other people, the ethical issues here feel more complicated. They, they do. That's the question. I mean, when we're thinking about writing about other people, it's not the same as writing about ourselves because if we're misrepresenting ourselves, that's a personal choice. We can do that all day and it's only going to affect us. Possibly yes, possibly no. I mean, if you think about all the various scandals that there always have been about memoirs, where people say something about their upbringing, something about their experiences of trauma or addiction or whatever it might be, and then it turns out not to be quite true. That can be quite devastating to people who've maybe taken taken that book as something important for their own lives. Um, so I think there is potentially, not generally if you're just, you know, saying that, I don't know, you spoke French better than you really do or whatever in a travel book. But but there is there is still an ethical issue there, I think, around fictionalizing self, potentially. Not not in this particular case. But um yeah, that that example for me is the one that you talked about, the guy Baggio, who I can remember what he looked like. He had curly hair, probably bleached at the end. I've no idea what colour t-shirt he was wearing, but if I was writing it up, I'd probably give him a blue t-shirt. Maybe some sunglasses, why not? Um, it, it's it's really interesting because, as you say, nothing has been invented, but it's what's been left out that is important and is significant, which is that this guy had international experience. He'd travelled to, travel to England and possibly travelled to other places as well. He was a he was manager of a small kind of backpacker guest house in in, um, in a place in, in, in Bali, in eastern, eastern Bali. And that's where this idea of fictionalization begins to intersect with all the other issues around sort of representation of cultures, representation of, um, of the other and, and others. Because what I've done there, in a very subtle way, is heightened the othering of that guy. You know, this is this is a guy who has um, who has international experience, has traveled, uh, traveled to the far side of the world. And, you know, he's speaking to me in English in that in that scene. And yet I have not allowed that part to, to be presented. I presented the bit where he talks about, you know, supernatural forces and the gods and the punishments of the gods and all of this kind of thing, which he was he was saying to me. Um, but that's the bit that I've allowed to stand through. And if you if you look across so many travel books about places that are distant, exotic, other to their writer and to the bulk of the writer's assumed audience, you'll find a pattern. And this is where even if you're, you know, you're a very strict travel journalist you do feature writing you think i don't ever i don't even move morning till afternoon i just don't do this stuff stop and think think about who are the people you put in your articles 
and I'd say you are more likely to have put the, the traditional artisan in the market, um, or the old lady selling selling handmade gifts on the beach or something. They're more likely to have been in, in your article than the you know, the guy with a PhD in business studies who's working for the local council doing the tourism plan, uh, or the, you know, the manager of the hotel who who trained in New York and spent several years in Dubai before he moved to manage this particular hotel. Those people are less likely to show up in the in the article. So you're you even if it's even if it's not within an individual biography like I did with that guy, leaving out the fact that he'd been to England, you're still doing it. There's still a there's still an element of fictionality there in that selectiveness. And that's where I think we need to audit really carefully. Think, why am I putting this person in this story? Or why am I letting this person say that thing? Now, what I think is really interesting about the example you mentioned in that manuscript. So there's me sort of going around very, very confidently asking people all these questions about indigenous belief and so on. And I, I did speak Indonesian, but not very well at the time. So what I find interesting looking back on that encounter, he is a guy, he is a very worldly who had been older than me, not massively older than me, but he would have probably been 30 or in his 30s, um, who's travelled, worked with tourism for many years. And what I see now when I look at that encounter is a different power dynamic. I see him knowing what I was looking for and giving me what I wanted, possibly with his tongue slightly in cheek. Like he is a tourist who wants to know about how us Balinese are all, you know, great believers in the power of the gods and all of this kind of thing. And never mind the fact that I spent a couple of months in London last year doing whatever it was. Never mind the fact that actually my major interest is motorbikes and punk rock or whatever it might have been. I know what he's looking for. I'll, with a straight face, tell him, oh, yes, you know, we all believe that it's this, that and the other. Now, maybe he did believe some of that stuff. You can be both at the same time. But that's what I, I see there. I see a, a slight slight invert potentially there's an inversion of the power dynamic there that i'm the one who's being spun a line but you have to look very carefully and you have to know the context and you have to know the bits that are missing from the manuscript to be able to disinter that this i mean this kind of self-awareness i mean these things aren't things that we tend to think about when we're writing like you said this becomes automatic for people who have spent time writing you know we create nice narratives and that means that we put this in and we leave this out because this sounds better, this looks better, the reader will enjoy this more. But that has consequences because we're talking about places that exist. And when people approach travel writing, they approach it thinking, well, I'm gonna learn about a certain part of the world and it's gonna teach me what it's like. There is this expectation of you know, teaching and learning. So, you know, I mean, teachers in a classroom aren't going to walk into the classroom and, you know, I believe this, guys. And, you know, this, I think, is what you guys should take home today. You know, they're generally <laughs> trying to present facts. You know, they should, <laughs> for the most part. There can only be discussions about opinions, but those things need to be signaled. You know, we're going to have a debate right now. You can share your opinions. Um, but this is what happened in the historical context or whatever it may be, right? So this expectation of, you know, it goes beyond storytelling, it gets into this realm of, I want to learn something, so I'm going to travel writing because I can trust it to teach me. You know, is yes. that is that an expectation that readers just shouldn't have? Um, no, I think because, you know, that's one of the great strengths of travel writing. One of its great attractions is that it allows you to get some of that information about a place, maybe a place you're going to or a place you've been to, or a place you've no intention of ever going to, but you're you're kind of interested. And it's generally more pleasant 
to spend a hundred thousand words in the company of somebody, a person who's wandering around that place and is telling you stuff about it, giving you an impression of it, than reading a kind of a brief history. I've written brief histories, but but those are less, I imagine, less enjoyable as narratives than a first person travel book and some of the first person travel books that I've written. Um uh, so so it, you know, travel writing serves that purpose and it's one of its great attractions. And even in an age where we can all just go to Wikipedia to find out something about, I don't know, Balinese, Balinese customs and belief, it's still kind of nice to have somebody somebody take you there vicariously and, and, and show you around and say, I spoke to this guy in the cafe and he told me about, you know, how they thought the tsunami was divine retribution and so on. Think, well, that's that's interesting. So I think it's 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 nice, but that is also where an individual act of travel writing is part of a network. And I think we need to be aware of that too. So I would, at that point, have had certain notions about what Bali was like. Same notions that a lot of us have, whether we've been there or not. You know, this deeply spiritual tropical island full of full of you know ancient practices where people are really in tune with, with spirituality and whatever. I had those notions now. Where did they come from? They came from somewhere because I had them before I ever arrived in Bali. They came from the texts I've been exposed to. They came from the guidebooks that I'd read. They came from documentaries I'd said. I don't know if I'd ever read any novels or I probably had read at least one travel book about Bali the first time I ever went there. So those notions were in place. So when I then looked around, I looked for things that confirmed what I'd read, that fit with with what I'd read. Now, I also saw a whole bunch of punk rockers on motorbikes and, you know, other stuff, Kentucky Fried Chicken and various other things. And I, I sort of saw them, but they didn't resonate with me so much as, oh, here's somebody doing a, you know, a, a, a ceremony that I don't understand with all these beautiful offerings and so on. That sort of resonated because it confirmed with what I've read. Now, if I'm just a, a regular traveler, I'm not writing anything apart from maybe my own journal that's fine but then if i'm there as a writer i'm more likely to write about the guy in the cafe telling me about you know the gods had punished us with the tsunami or write about the colorful ceremony than write about the rockers and motorbikes and the kfc shops so i've now contributed to a discourse about that place and somebody is going to read my text and that's going to contribute to their idea about what bali's like so when they descend on bali Again, it's going to be harder for them to write about the punk rockers on motorbikes and the KFCs. They're going to probably write about people telling them about divine retribution and spirits on the mountain and ceremonies and so on. So each individual act of travel writing then becomes part of a discourse. And those discourses often carry tropes and stereotypes and traces of coloniality and and crude binaries about east and west and all the rest of it and and they flow they flow along from text to text so uh yeah that's where and and you know as we were saying nothing is being invented i'm not making things up i'm not going oh my god there's nothing here apart from endless kfc's full of punk rock motorcyclists i'm gonna make up a guy who's gonna tell me about divine retribution gods and do an ancient ceremony because i don't need to because those things are all there they're all there but i unwittingly unconsciously choose what i what i emphasize and that applies across travel writing because guidebooks do that as much as literary narratives as much as as much as short form features um that applies across the whole the whole gamut of what we we consider travel writing 
this idea of this larger discourse that you know each individual act of travel writing is contributing to this larger discourse. I want to use that to jump into a brief discussion of Rory McLean. Um, ah, I found this so fascinating in the travel writing tribe. This chapter was so much fun. Um, you know, Rory McLean, he he writes what he likes to think is travel writing, <laughs> what he calls travel writing, but it is highly fictionalized. And he includes elements that, you know, a reader just simply wouldn't believe. They would immediately say, this is not true. I think he begins one book with, you know, a ghost speaking in the first paragraph. Things that you're immediately aware, this isn't all true. But he still is included in your book, which means that even you consider him a travel writer. And, you know, there is this unease that you express in that chapter of, you know, he is among travel writers. What does that mean for the rest of us? <laughs> you know, I'm glad that he exists. He's His writing is amazing. Um, he's definitely stretching the limits of how we think about travel writing. But how does that impact the rest of us who aren't doing exactly that and are grappling with this idea of truth? I'm, I'm really glad you, you took us to that because I thought it was important that we, we talked about, so what do we do about this? But yeah, Rory, Rory McLean is yeah a wonderful writer, really kind of playful writer. And his books are travel books. They're always based on a journey. Um, you know, he goes to the place. He doesn't, he doesn't pretend he's been to somewhere he hasn't. But there's just, as soon as you start reading, even if there isn't something massively, obviously fantastical right at the beginning, you just have this sense. You can feel the ground shifting slightly. Things just seem slightly, slightly odd. And it's a deliberate strategy for him. He, he, he says that quite clearly. He wants people to know that. He's, he's, not, he's not hoping that people really think that he travelled around Europe with a pig in the car with an elderly auntie. He always says there was a pig, there was an auntie, there was a Trabant, an old, an old car. Um, just not necessarily at the same time in the same place. But in the book, they are in the same place. They travel around together. And but, but I think anyone reading that kind of gets the sense that this couldn't really be exactly as it happens. And that's what he wants. That's what he wants you to, to think and feel. Now, that can make for a kind of uncomfortable reading experience because it doesn't fit within that binary. We're so used to being, okay, it's Paul through. This is definitely true. Uh, so when you read Rory McLean, you feel uneasy. You feel destabilized. But I definitely think it is a strategy. And I think it's a, an ethical strategy to get around that. Um, and I think it works well for him. I don't think it works for everyone because some people want to be Colin Thubrod. People want to say, this is what this is what happened. This is what really happened. But I think, I think all of us can borrow from Rory McLean in a small way. And I think that's what I've what I've sort of tried to do a little bit since since the travel writing tribe. You know, the books I write are fundamentally um I told in good faith. I don't kind of willfully play fast and loose. And I've gotten much, much tighter about that than I would have been in that manuscript, which is discussed in the article that we're talking about. I'm so glad that was never published. I, I mean, I've I've never, and it's strange reflecting on it, I've never been as brazen and flippant about, yeah, chopping and changing things as I was in that sort of first attempt, which came quite close to being published, actually. It was um, it was looked at by several publishers and one came really quite close, um, which was devastating at the time when it didn't. But my goodness, I'm so glad about it now. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I do. I, I am a fairly straight travel writer in the kind of Colin Thubron tradition. But I think you can 
you can bring in little elements, little nods, little little bits of kind of meta travel writing where you talk about your own process, where you you maybe reflect on why was I why was I really so happy to meet this guy called Baggio who was telling me about tsunamis and the gods and all of that thing? Why why was I being so drawn to him? And why was I thinking, oh, this could be good for my good for my story? And then when he tells you that he's also spent time in England, you think, shite, I better put that in. <laughs> so you so you do. I think I think being self-aware, being self-reflective and building those little bits of, of meta-commentary are, are a way out of all of this. Um, and then we, the readers, can see you wrestling with these things. We can see you making those kind of editorial decisions where you think she's going in, he's not going in because whatever. And I think that actually makes for richer and more interesting travel writing. I mean, you can take the Rory McLean approach, which is great fun, put, put pigs falling out of trees in the first paragraph, and then everyone knows that we're not on entirely stable ground here. But you can you can be a faithfully recounting travel writer and still bring in those little reflexivities and, and meta elements. And that's that's what I tried to do. And for me, that's where the that's where the get out clause lies. Yeah, there's this moment in the travel writing chat when you're talking with Rory. Um, and he says, uh, and I guess that's also why it is for me so important that one acknowledges the subjectivity, acknowledges that this is a creative work, that this is a truth, not the truth. And that to me feels like a key here where there is no one truth with a capital T, right? We are representing a truth in the way that we can. Um, and that understanding feels really important here. I think so, because travel writing has tended to and still does when it's sort of journalistic or, or informational guidebook type writing has tended to adopt this tone of authority. It needs to be authoritative. If you buy the rough guide or the lonely planet, you 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 kind of want it to describe real places. If you find somewhere in the guidebook and says this sounds like a wonderful little beach town and then you get a bus and there's no beach town there, you think what happened? You know, you want that authority. And also when you're reading a narrative account, you, you want it to be recognisable if you go there in person. If you read a narrative account of Bali and you get there in person, you go, yeah, I read about that in Tim Hannigan's dreadful 2004 unpublished manuscript, The Ghost Islands. This is recognisable. You want that authority. And that authority tends to lead us into being authoritative and not showing that subjectivity, not showing that vulnerability, not showing that slippery nature of truth that Rory McLean is talking about. So I think that again is a there's a tension, but you probably can find a path between, you know, being authoritative, having done your research, having taken the time to speak to people and find people and whatever, but also draw attention to the fact that I'm seeing this place in a particular way because of all the things that have influenced me because of the narrative I know you want at the other end of the, the reading process. So yeah, it's always about drawing on that potential for meta-narration and for self-reflexivity in travel writing, which travel writing has and, and has always had, has always had the potential for, and sometimes hasn't used enough. Now, personally, I'm kind of a bit uneasy with the Rory McLean approach because I think there is actually a danger within adopting the idea I can make stuff up. I, so long as I let people know I can make stuff up because you can then still inadvertently do things. You can make up characters or scenarios that are still related to all those discourses, to all those tropes and cliches and stereotypes. So that may happen. You may kind of adopt this power of the fiction writer 
to to make things that fit up fit into you know, models you have in your subconscious from somewhere so i personally like the idea of trying to tell it as faithfully as you can but also drawing attention directly to the fact that that's not always possible it's, it's never possible it's never possible i can't remember what i had for breakfast this morning let alone what which bowl i ate it out of <laughs> if you wanted me to narrate the day i'd say i had cornflakes for breakfast in the blue bowl because that's of no consequence but i've i've stepped over a line yeah i like that i like how you're speaking about how travel writers really just need to recognize and be self-reflective which travel writers are really good at doing in general i mean we not only write about travel experience but we write about our experience of it which is naturally self-reflective and i think if people like you said approach that in kind of a meta-analysis way i think that can be really helpful just to wrap us up, and I think you did just touch on this a little bit. I think I know the answer here. But in the article that we've been discussing, you say, and I quote, while I remain open to the ethical possibilities of fiction and overtly experimental travel writing, my revisiting of the ghost islands suggests that some attempted fidelity to the actuality, all the indefatigable contrary forces of history, discourse, and power acknowledged, remains the most obviously ethical approach for a travel writer, end quote. So you wrote that in 2018. Uh, it's been about five years ago. Do you still stick to that view? I do, yeah. It's, if anything, it's kind of hardened. And I've been, in my own practice, I find that I'm stricter and stricter about trying to be trying to be faithful. But that was, in a way, a response to some arguments by some academics that you know, travel writing, traditional conventional travel writing, is just not particularly good at really allowing space for um, the local people to speak, to have a voice for their lives truly to be captured. So there have been one or two academics, post-colonial scholars who've said, actually, you know, taking a fictional approach, doing what Roy McLean does in, in Myanmar, um, you know, interviewing people, uh, various people, and then from those interviews, crafting a character who represents a particular experience of a person who wouldn't often really get to, to share their full life story with a travel writer, that that would be an ethical practice because you've kind of, for the readers, created a really empathetic glimpse into a life in Rory McLean's case in Myanmar, uh, a woman um, a woman dying of AIDS actually in a hospice there in, in, in the 90s, who was based on several people he met, who he kind of combined to create this really touching, really powerful narrative. And there are these scholars who would argue that that, you know, that's more ethical than Paul through just blasting past and going, oh, there were some poor people somewhere. Don't know what they were called. <laughs> um, and you can, you, you know, you can see, well, which one has more power, which one generates more empathy, which one gives us more of a glimpse of a life. And yeah, there's a strong argument that Roe McLean's approach is the more effective one there. But for me, the power is when something happens that the travel writer can't control. And Rory McLean is in total control of that narrative, even though he's, you know, he's doing it for the sake of creating an empathetic portrayal. He's in control. And what I like is the idea when a person, a local person says something, does something that disrupts the agenda of the travel writer. And now, if I was writing that thing about Bali now, what I would have done and what I would do, uh, and I, this is not me just saying, honestly, you know, I'm not guilty now. I know I would do because it would excite me, that scenario, meeting that guy in that in that cafe. I would tell it 
as it is, I'd have him, you know, telling me all this stuff about the the divine retribution and the gods and the tsunamis and the ceremonies and all of this and that and the other. And I would have reflected on myself how excited by this I was, how I was thinking, oh, yes, this is this is the real Bali. And then I would let the reader see him saying, oh, yeah, I was in I was in London last year, actually. And me going, oh, um, and having my my expectations pivoted, I would put that in because I actually think those bits where what really happens, what actually happens, kind of disrupts what the travel writer wants to happen. Those are, those are some of the most interesting bits. So I, I kind of actively look for those things now. And it's, it's kind of a way to, way to do both. You tell things faithfully, but you also draw attention to the, to the things that happen. Yeah. And I mean, we definitely see you doing that in, in the Granite Kingdom. I mean, like I said, that is definitely, as far as I can tell, uh, a faithful retelling of what happened. And you can tell that you you get excited by those moments where things happen that you didn't expect, things that you couldn't control. Um, so I like that approach. I think that's a really good way to think about it. Tim, for people who listen to this conversation and are feeling, oh my gosh, there's a lot to think about here. How do I even begin to approach a new travel story with all of this in mind? Is there you know, a piece of advice or a suggestion you can offer people to maybe help them parse out all of this in their own minds? You know, if we're just talking about writing travel pieces, travel features, which is, I, it's, it's for me, the origin of travel writing, it's, it's the best way to be a travel writer, to become a travel writer, because you're working with narrative, you're working with first person experience, but usually in a, in a relatively neat package of one or two or 3000 words. If you're doing that, if you're doing that writing, definitely audit your own experience when you're writing it up you think why and what else happened and are there other things that i haven't written about could i write a second article about this same trip that would give a totally radically different experience and maybe try that as a as an exercise you know if you've written a piece and you think this is great yeah I, i'm sure i can sell this i've got the old lady on the beach with the with the handmade souvenirs and i've got a guy telling me about divine punishment and gods and tsunamis that's great yeah and i've got loads of palm trees and temples i can sell that stop and think is there another way i could recount this story and one which puts an emphasis on the yeah, the punks on the motorbikes and whatever else and that time you were just like oh, i'm hungry i want fried chicken and you went into kfc instead of instead of eating rice from a banana leaf plate um so try that and then look at the two and think where is the I'm doing air quotes here where is the truth between these two and the truth air quotes again is probably somewhere in the middle and maybe you can then stitch them together and then maybe you have a kind of yeah a whole package you will inevitably make those little tweaks you'll put the thing that happened in the morning in the afternoon because you will because craft is is an imperative making the story work is an imperative but i think don't stop thinking about it don't stop agonizing about the decision because I think that's what happens to a lot of more experienced travel writers. It just becomes so automatic, becomes so blasé about it that they don't even know they're doing it. And I think that's where it becomes dangerous. That's where you start to think, oh, wouldn't it be great if I met somebody who told me about tsunamis and punishments of the gods? I'll just make one up. And, and even that probably happens at a barely conscious level. So just when you make those little craft decisions, those necessary reorderings, Never do it lightly. I think that is a perfect piece of advice to, to end on. Thank you so much, Tim. And thank you so much for, for joining us again. This was a, a fantastic, interesting conversation that I will likely be thinking about for, for weeks. So, so thank you so much.
thank you no it's it's always a pleasure and yeah it's a it's a great topic and and travel writers as travel writers we need to think about it. we need to talk about it and um and be more open about it and it's it's a fun topic it makes travel writing more interesting when we put it out in the open I agree. I completely agree. Um, and thank you so much for helping us put it out in the open uh, with this episode. <laughs> Thanks so much, Tim. You're welcome. Thanks. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast wherever you listen. Don't forget to join us in two weeks for another exciting episode of the Travel Writing Podcast. See you next time.